Good morning, everybody. Like Corey just said, I'm Austin. I am uh, the lead pastor here at Chaparral. So glad you guys have joined us today. We're in part three of our series on Jonah. Three-part series, so, or sorry, four-part series, four chapters in the whole book, so it's pretty easy to kind of go through and uh, chop it up, uh, and each one kind of echoes at the other. So uh, as we'll see today, chapter three and chapter one have a lot in common, but in part one, in week one of this series, we saw just straightforward that God is the kind of God who can use anything you throw at him. It doesn't matter what happens, that God can take what's happening in your life, in my life, in the world, and he can use it for his good. Even if it doesn't feel like it in the moment, that's okay. So even though it doesn't feel like it, we trust that God can use all things to bring around his end. The, the other uh, thing we looked at last week is that God's grace is so much bigger than we could possibly imagine, meaning that there are people out there that God wants us to love indiscriminately. And so as a result, we know that God's grace is always more. God's grace is always better. So today, we're going to continue on, and we're going to get into chapter 3. And, and to kind of summarize what happened in the actual story, chapter 1, if you guys don't know much about Jonah, then you probably know the kid's coloring book part of it, right? Of the little piece of paper, and hey, there's a whale, and color in the whale, and all that stuff. It's actually a big fish. Technically, it doesn't say whale, but who knows? Maybe it was. Who cares? That's not the point. Uh, but Jonah uh, gets commanded by God to go and do something, and he says, ha, cool idea. I'm going that way instead. And so he goes the opposite direction, and then uh, God gets his attention through a storm, through the sailors, and they throw him overboard, and he gets swallowed by the big fish. And then while he's inside the big, that's the end of chapter one. While he's inside the big fish, this is chapter two, he has this moment, like, and by moment, I mean three days and three nights of a moment. That's a long moment, right? But he has this moment in the belly of the fish, and that's where everything changes. Oh, you know what, God? Oh. How foolish of me. And he starts singing God's praises and shouting for the Lord and all sorts of nice stuff. And you look at that and you're like, yay, he gets the point. Go, Jonah, go. And it ends with him being vomited out. Not exactly an elegant end to the chapter, but an ending nonetheless. He gets vomited out on dry land. And what happens, and this is kind of like baseball, what happens is that the game starts over. Baseball, you know, bottom of the seventh inning, the home team ties the game two to two. And it's like, oh, well, game starts again, right? Now it's just a two-inning game from here on out. And this is kind of like the game starting over. You see, in Jonah chapter 1, verse 1, it says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Okay? Chapter 3 says this, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. So it's not just the first time that the word of the Lord is coming here. It's the second time. Why? Because sometimes God has to say things twice. I know nobody here has that problem. Here, when God tells you to do something, all you nice chaparral folk, you go and do it. But Jonah's different. He's not like us. It takes him a while. Uh, God asks Jonah uh, to do something. He disobeys. God is patient and forgiving. Jonah is quick to judge. And what we're going to see in this, is this, what, this is what I really want you to pay attention to, is the character of God. Who is God? What, God is, what is God like? Because often the God that we have in mind isn't the God that we find in the Bible. The God that we grew up with, that mom and dad taught us incidentally or non-incidentally, might not be the God that's actually there because what we find is a God that is charitable and loving and gracious, especially in this story. So 
Let's get going in Jonah chapter three. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Last time, Jonah went to Nineveh. Uh, he went in the opposite direction. So God tells him to go. Let's see what he does here. Verse three. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. What? He actually did it? Wow, that's a step in the right direction, isn't it? He actually goes in the right direction. If you have a rebellious kid at all, you know how shocking it can be when somebody who does not listen actually pays attention. Uh, it's always the worst thing is when you get the email from the teacher, uh, which is how they do it nowadays. Sometimes they might pull you aside after school gets dismissed, and they let you know a little bit of, hey, uh, something happened at school today. <sighs> And that's when you take that deep breath, and you're like, okay, what did my kid do again? And, uh, or the email, and you take the deep breath, and you look through that, and then they say, uh, little Jimmy, your son, he, he did a wonderful thing. He helped a kid up off the playground who had a bloody knee. It was, I just wanted to let you know he, he did a really nice thing there. And you think, whoa, wait, what? He did something good? This is a shock. But then the second paragraph begins. Also, Jimmy was the one that was going around punching and pushing kids at the playground. So if you could tell Jimmy to stop bloodying the kids up before he takes them to the nurse's office, you're like, oh, there it is. There it is. Yeah, okay, now we got something to talk about. Uh, sometimes you think you're raising Superman. In reality, you're raising Lex Luthor. And you don't know that until you get a little bit older. I'm not saying I'm speaking from experience here. But you know, there's always a little bit of truth to these things. Uh, when it comes to a rebellious kid who finally gets it right, you feel like, oh, yes, all right, we got it. But you also know there's something else there. And there's something else sitting deeper in that. Although there's something good happening, uh, the track record here gives you reason to be a little bit suspicious. So, like, one, uh, like many of us, or none of us, I'm sure, Jonah has plenty of time to reconsider things. Verse 4, Jonah began by doing, uh, going on a day's journey into the city. So he goes into Nineveh. Now, here's what you need to know. It's multiple days to get to Nineveh. So when he gets spit out in dry land, we're talking like three days, give or take, of travel. And then Nineveh, it takes three days to cross the whole city. So he goes one day in, a day's journey into the city. Now, what happens in this time, it's like any time that you have the option to reconsider, like you have this profound experience and all of a sudden you're going on this long journey and you, you get to think about it. You're like, well, the fire that was burning back then, it's not as strong today. Like being in one of those near-death experience roller coasters. You know, you look on it and your kids are like, hey, dad, let's go on that one. And you're like, oh, I don't want to look like a coward, so I'm going to say yes. It doesn't look like it's too bad anyway. But then you get a little bit closer as the line, and they're letting people on and off, and you're realizing, I'm going to have to get on this thing. Uh, do I really want to do it? And you don't want to look like a coward in front of your kids, but at the same time, you feel like one because you are one. Now, I am speaking autobiographically, by the way. Uh, and the Ferris wheel can just really freak you out sometimes, and so, or spinning teacups or whatever it is. Uh, when, by the time you actually get there, there's a different kind of a feeling. Because maybe, like, yeah, let's go and have some fun at the amusement park. Changes as you get older. Changes as time passes. And we see this playing out in, uh, in the way that people work out. We have a gym on campus, and this is true for all gyms, I'm pretty sure. You want to know what the busiest day of the week is? 
Any guesses? Monday. Because you ate like crap all weekend, you drank too much, and you're like, you know what? Diet starts Monday, celery only, I'm doing this. And the gym is packed. Gym I went to before, I would avoid Mondays because it was so full, you just didn't know if you're gonna be able to do anything. And of course, you know this, later on in the week, fewer and fewer people. The same is true for the beginning of the month, and if a Monday falls on the beginning of the month, holy cow, the stars have aligned, it's gonna be crazy busy. Uh, we know this at the beginning of the year. We all make these resolutions, all this stuff. The beginning is always the popular time. But if you want to know when people kind of peter off, it's sometime after that. Let me ask you, who here made a big decision in January? It's going to be different this year. It's August 28th. Who's still with it? Anybody? Yeah? You don't want to single yourself out. I get it. I'm in the same boat. That's how this stuff tends to operate. Jonah is no different. Spirituality is no different. You go and maybe when you were in high school uh, or just younger in general, you had this profound experience. And it was great and it transformed your life and you took steps in your faith. You got baptized. You did all of these things. But then life comes at you. And one thing happens and another, and all of a sudden, the things that you felt back then are still are, are gone, and the problems are still with you. And I deal with this all the time when people get baptized, when people take those steps in their faith. The, the problem that they often don't realize, and I try to prepare people for this, but you still have to go home and still have to deal with the problems that you have there, right? Like, like you still have to deal with the addiction. You still have to deal with that unhealthy relationship. You still have to deal with all of the stuff that you had beforehand. The difference, isn't that God like magic erasered away all of your problems? The difference is that now you have God on your side in a way that you never have before. And you have his spirit living in you, empowering you to be more loving and joyful and peaceful and patient and kind and so on and so on and so on. And because of that, that's how you stay married to Bob, right? That's how you stay, that's how, it's how we keep going as a church, is that day after day and week after week and month after month and year after year, this is how we keep going. It's through becoming more like that. And so the motivation for Jonah, it's big. In chapter two, he's doing all the things that you would expect him to do. Oh, yes, Lord, amen, uh-huh. And now chapter three, here we go. This is where he goes into Nineveh. Verse four, Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now, a couple things here. First, it's difficult to proclaim God's wrath. Like, you're on some iffy ground if you're proclaiming God's wrath on something. I'm not saying you can't do it. There's plenty of examples of prophets in the Bible doing it right here. We have Jonah. But here's how they do it time and again is, is they go at this with fear and trembling before God and saying, God, are you sure you want me to say this? This is bad news. Like real people that you love and care for might die. Like this is, and then they go out there and they're weeping and they do the craziest stuff. Some of the Old Testament prophets, you might've read some of it. It's just, it's, they go through all of that and, and finally they say, but God, you have given me this message. And far be it from me to not do what you've asked me to do. And so they go and they do it. And when they go and they do it, people, sometimes they listen. A lot of times they don't. And as a result of all of it, they know that even if they end up in shackles, even if they end up killed, even if the prophet ends up being ostracized from the rest of the community, they know that they carried forth the message that God wanted them to carry. It's heavy 
It's hard, but they do it at the end of the day. Jonah, he doesn't bat an eyelash because he believes that God's going to hate the same people he hates. If you want to know how you get it wrong, it's when God hates all the same people you hate. If you want to know how to get it wrong, it's when God hates all the same people that you hate. I'll say it a third time before I get an amen. (laughs) If you want to know how to get it wrong, it's when your God hates all the same people you hate. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, we, we, hey, and that's true for all of us. The, the, the sin that we often fall into is thinking is that, that God is always 100% on my side as I see it. And trust me, God's on your side. Just don't assume that you always see it exactly perfectly, right? And that, that, that's, that's what we try to learn from this. He walks in there and he believes that he knows exactly what God's message is. And so he says, hey, Nineveh. God's going to kill y'all soon. You? Oh, yeah. God's going to kill y'all soon. Over there? Mm-hmm. God's going to kill y'all soon. In Hebrew, five words. All of this, it's a five-word sermon, and it's the most prideful, smug sermon you could possibly hear. God's going to kill y'all soon. Like, what would you do if somebody just walked into Scottsdale and just stood on the road and just, uh, hey, Scottsdale, um, God's going to kill y'all soon. Like you might call a cop. I don't know. That'd probably be a good step. Or you might just say, get out of here. What you, what's going on? You got a problem. Uh, like, like there's a whole list of things that you would do, but you probably wouldn't listen to him and his smug proclamation that God's going to kill y'all soon. Because this does not sound like any other prophet. In fact, we've talked about this before. He is the anti-prophet. He is the one that does exactly the opposite of what you would expect a prophet to do. And what happens repeatedly in this story of Jonah is the opposite of what you would expect to happen. So he goes in here, gives the most miserable sermon that just ostracizes people and condemns them in just five words. It's pretty incredible how efficient this bad sermon is. And here's how the Ninevites respond. The Ninevites believed God. Wait, what? Then it like kick him out? His smug message worked? A fast was proclaimed. And all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. Of course they did. He goes in there and he does the bare minimum. He doesn't even do what God asked him to do because we know that his proclamation isn't even true. He says, God's going to kill you all soon. He says, God's going to do this. The reality is God's not gonna do that. The message is God might do something if you guys don't figure this out. That's the real message. He doesn't give that one. He gives the other one that he really wants. Why? Because he wants to see God kill all these bad Assyrians, all these people in the city of Nineveh. And so this is how the story keeps on going and plays out time and again. Jonah does the bare minimum, and the absolute maximum is the result. He does the absolute least he can to preach, and the response to it is through the roof. In fact, it becomes one of the most ridiculous responses you can see, as we'll read here in a minute. Sackcloth that's mentioned, it's this, it's this fabric, uh, this outfit that people would put on, and they would put it on to show that they were uh, sad, that they were miserable, that they were suffering and struggling because they've experienced some sort of loss. 
And uh, kind of the equivalent would be if you did your makeup to look as if you've been crying all day and then you went outside. You want people to know that you're mourning and you're going through something. So they put on this sackcloth that's made, made out of goat hair or other uh, animal hair that's prickly and not comfortable for the skin because they don't want to just look like they're in dire straits here. They want to feel that way too. It's a true mourning that they're going through and everybody puts it on. When Jonah's warning, this is verse six, uh, reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is his pro- the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Guys, everyone here is repenting, including the animals. If, if you're like, is this supposed to be a ridiculous story? Yes, this is supposed to be a ridiculous, like the goats are repenting. You wanna know how hard the goats are repenting? They're putting goat hair on the goats with the sackcloth. That's how hard they're repenting. Like they're taking this seriously and they're gonna do this for real. Can you imagine if somebody did this at church? Like, man, I wanna, I wanna give my life to Jesus. It's all new and you know what? Mr. Whiskers, he's coming with me. I'm going home. I'm getting my cat. We're getting baptized together. Have you ever seen a cat uh, try to take a bath? Now, I would never baptize a cat. Some things can't be redeemed uh, like cats. That's in the Bible. I know, Penny, you like cats. I'm sorry, uh, but it's true. The... uh, Animals are putting on sackcloth. All of these things are happening. People are changing. Now, look at this. In in chapter one, you have the sailors. You have these bad guys, these pagans, these outsiders that by the end of it are making sacrifices and are becoming obedient to Jonah's God. The oddest thing that you can imagine happening in that story, these guys are not supposed to be honest, God-fearing folk. They're sailors after all. In chapter three, you have the same thing happening. You have these Assyrians who are known for butchering people and displaying their carcasses uh, just for fun and and to strike fear into their enemies' hearts and all sorts of just brutal things. Yet these are the people that are turning and saying, yes, absolutely, we're so sorry, all this stuff. We've been wrong the whole time. You see the echoes of this happening and we'll see that again, of course, in the next chapter. So the king He hears all of this stuff. He has this response. He has everybody repent. And then in verse nine, he continues on. He says, who knows, says the king of Nineveh. God may relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so so that we will not perish. First things first, he's gonna repent because it's the right thing to do. Not because he knows exactly how to get everything out. He's not trying to manipulate God. He's just trying to say, hey, you know what? The right thing to do here is for us to turn. And even if doing the right thing does not lead to the outcomes that we want, which is to live and to thrive and to flourish, that's okay. We're still going to try to do the right thing, regardless of the outcomes. Second thing is that he hopes, he has hope that maybe God will. Maybe he will. If he won't, then we get what we deserve. But if he will, well then, how great of a God is that? And he doesn't know this God. He's unfamiliar with this God. He's heard five words that have led him to this point. 
He's just doing his best with what little he knows. And he hopes that the character of this God that he's heard about is different than perhaps the gods that he's imagined up before. So here's the result of this verse 10, final verse of this chapter. When God saw what they did, what the Assyrians did, and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. There's a dominant belief that this parable tells us, and it continues to go against. It's this idea that if we do enough right things, God will start paying attention. If we do, if we are righteous and holy enough, whatever that means, that finally God will like us. And what we see time and again is that our religious system, and this is one of the parts of Jonah that I think is really important for us to understand, our religious system is not meant to just build up the insiders and condemn the outsiders. That was Jonah's idea. He walked around with this idea that it was all about Israel, Israel's God, that is it. That's the box, nothing outside of it. And God says, no, 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 what about those people? He says, ha, 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 you gotta be kidding. And that's where this whole story comes from. We have this idea that God cares more about us than he does about people outside of here. And that creeps its way in. And I don't know how long you've been a Christian. If it's a long time, then this has probably crept its way in at some point in your life. It's a short time. I hope it hasn't yet. But I know that this is something that tends to happen, especially in the church, is we start thinking that it's about us and that we are the good ones because we showed up on Sunday morning and we tuned in on Sunday morning or sometime throughout the week. And, and we're the ones that are checking off each box. And what we see is that God continually points outward. He says, yes, it's, all this stuff, the religious stuff, it's great for you. So, so Jonah, he is this Israel prophet, and it's this idea that Israel, uh, he's working with this idea that Israel is God's chosen land. And he's not wrong. Like, it is God's chosen people, and they, they are the ones with the temple. The temple's not in Egypt. The temple's not in Assyria. The temple is in Israel. Ah, God's physical manifest, his presence is right here. Nobody else can claim that. So we're special. We're better. And God says, hmm, you are special. You are not better. Because when you see how history plays out, is it that God is so afraid of his temple being destroyed that he won't allow it, that Israel is protected? No. If you know anything about the history of what happens here, multiple times the temple is, is built and destroyed. Well, if, if God doesn't, if that's not the point, if God's okay, if that's like a negotiable part of being God's chosen people that you don't even have to have a temple, well then, how do you understand that, God? Well, I guess it would begin that it doesn't start with a temple. And that being God's chosen people and being the people that God wants to use to change the world, being a light in darkness, let's say, doesn't necessarily involve a temple. And for us, we could say it doesn't necessarily involve a church. It doesn't necessarily even involve a Bible study. After all, we know that the body is the temple. And so you, you become the person that God, the thing that God wants to use. We become the group that God wants to use, not to exclude others, not to say that God's going to kill y'all, not to walk around with that kind of, no, 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 but to say, hey, God has something so much better, so much greater than what you could possibly imagine.
but it's on the other side of what it is that you're facing today. You're gonna have to get through this, and God wants to be with you as you go about that. The king of Nineveh says something that the nation needs to hear. He says, who knows? Maybe God will show us mercy. Like, there's a humility that comes from that, isn't there? Who knows? Like, not that I deserve this. God deserves to show me mercy because of how hard I've worked or all the things I've done or how could something happen to me because of how much money I have given. He doesn't come at any of this. Rather, he says, perhaps God will show us mercy and I'm gonna do the right thing regardless of whatever the outcomes might be. We have that temptation. That temptation that we believe that our righteousness, that the good things that we do lead to God's favor. But I just wanna let you know this. And this is a little bit of a secret. Uh, so I, I don't want you to um, spread it around too much, all right? If this is going out to the internet, this is where we can you know, perhaps pause it right there for everybody watching online, because uh, we don't want everybody to hear this. This is a secret to get God's favor. This is how you get God to like you. And I'm gonna say it and you're not gonna believe it, so I want you to suspend your disbelief for a little bit. Uh, it, and I know that you can do that because you guys like Marvel movies and those have sorcerers and talking raccoons. And so if you liked those movies, you can pay attention for a few minutes here, all right? Suspend your disbelief. Here's the secret to getting God's favor. You can't. You can't get God's favor. You cannot earn something that you already have. You already have God's favor. This is why you cannot get it, because you have it. You might say, well, I'm not a Christian. You still have God's favor on you. you it doesn't matter who you are, just because you're in church does not mean that you get an extra dose of it. No, 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 you have God's favor no matter who you are. The people out there driving on Sachet, those sinners that are not in church right now, how dare they? They have God's favor just as much as you or I. We all have God's favor, and here's why. When you were nothing, God did everything. When you were nothing, God did everything. If you're an Assyrian, you're one of those brutal bad guys, God still did everything for you. You're an Egyptian, you're one of those people that held the, the Hebrew people in slavery, God still has his favor on you. You're a Christian, and you're in church on Sunday morning, God has his favor on you. You're at home and you're struggling, God has his favor on you. You cannot earn God's favor because you already have God's favor. And this is great news. The question isn't, how can I get more of God's favor? You got it already. The question is, how are you going to live your life? Are you gonna live your life in obedience to the God that calls you and invites you into this life of love, joy, peace? And so on and so on. Or are you gonna live your life still playing by the rules of the world? Still trying to fight anger with anger. Still trying to fight violence with more violence. Still trying to spew hatred because hatred was spewing at you. How are you going to live your life? Are you gonna allow God's favor to transform you or are you going to go out and let others see God's favor through your actions? We talk about this at Chaparral a lot. We are blessed to be a blessing. 
God did not give us a lot of awesome stuff like a campus and a church and, you know, the jobs that we have and the retirement you might enjoy and the kids we get to raise. God did not give that to us so that we can hoard it and death grip it. God gave that to you and to me so that we could go out and bless others with our money, bless others with our campus, bless our community with what we have to offer and give back. And in doing that, we show people God's favor. We don't get more of it, we just show it. I grew up in a church uh, that loved to guilt, uh, guilt people, guilt people in Jesus. Guilt was everywhere, it was just the most guilty thing in the world. And as you might guess, I didn't really like going to church much. Uh, it wasn't a very fun place to be because you always just felt guilty about something you were doing. One, I remember this sermon because I was begging my mom for a Nintendo. Uh, the original, yes, I'm that old. Uh, the original Nintendo, she wouldn't do it. And then that Sunday, the preacher got up and preached the sermon about some evil video game. Uh, and I was just like, oh, man. I'm not even gonna ask again when I get home now. Because uh, that is before kids' church and all that stuff. So again, I'm like this little thing having to sit through this boring dude talking on stage. It was terrible. I'd rather be out wandering around. Uh, so I'm in this church and I'm trying to like figure things out and they make you feel so guilty. You ask Jesus into your heart like at least a dozen times a week. You're like, oh God, please forgive me again. Oh God, please come into my heart, forgive me again. And it never really seemed to take. And then... As I got older, as I got baptized, and as I began to see things, I realized, ah, this is what it means. Okay, I'm now experiencing the favor that God has had on me. I get it, and now I want to show others how to have that favor too. So I went, and I got degrees in being a pastor and stuff, and I've been a pastor for almost 20 years, and I've done all sorts of wonderful things, funerals, weddings. I've sat with people as they've wept and mourned, and I've been with people as they've celebrated some of the greatest successes in their life. And do you know how much more God loves me as a result? Not a bit. No different than if I was out scooping up yak poop in Tibet. Like there's no difference in getting God's favor. If you go and do the same thing I did, that will not get you any more of God's favor. That will not get God to like you any more than he already loves you right now. Nothing you can do can earn that. You cannot get what you already have because when you were nothing, God already did everything. And that's not just true for me, but that's true for you. See, the Christian life is not about doing. It's not about how much more can I do. Rather, it's about receiving and saying, ah, that, that makes sense. Like the king of Nineveh, five-word sermon, that makes sense. Okay, let's now go and live our life in accordance with that. Because this is how God has called us to live. A life filled with well-being and goodness. And a life that is not void of struggle, but a life that in the struggle shows us that yes, God is still with us. And that's the God that we see, the God who gave himself for us so clearly in the crucifixion. We see what God himself did in Jesus as he went to the cross and did not consider that being too far, but said this is exactly what needs to happen if you're gonna understand how much I love you. And to this day, that continues to transform the world. And my hope and my prayer is that that transforms your life as well.